Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Mary, the mother of Jesus, John, the youngest of the disciples, and Mary Magdalene watched Jesus crucified and were there until he died. And his body was taken down and given to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who quickly prepared his body and put it in the grave. And the Bible says the women that were there watched while he was buried. It is the very hope for every follower of Jesus. Today on Practical Christian Living, we are studying the resurrection of Jesus and also taking a closer look at the disciples of Jesus who were women and the very special role they played in his life and at his resurrection. We have a great study in store for you today. Stay with us as we open up in John 20, 1 through 18. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we give you this night. We turn to your, your word. We thank you that we can lift your name up and praise you. We pray that our heart has been pure in doing so. And if it hasn't been pure, if we haven't been praising you out of that pure heart, then reveal that to us now because we want things right between you and our God. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 1 through 18 today as we continue our Jesus appointment series. And we are now in the post-resurrection appointments where Jesus is appearing to people after he is risen from the dead. And on this last week, we looked at Jesus and the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And now we want to look at Mary Magdalene. The reason I didn't do Mary Magdalene on a weekend was because we had talked about that four or five months ago. We did this study four or five months ago. So I wanted to have a little bit different break and I wanted to approach it from a little different way than normal. So we'll be doing that today. All right. So John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray. We'll ask God to bless our study. Father, we're so thankful for the time that we're able to open up our Bibles and learn from your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. We want to hear from you. We want to be directed by you. As we study this passage, we want to know what kind of things you want to apply to us where we are here today. We know that this is not just all general, that your Holy Spirit is working. And so we make ourselves available to you. Speak to us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen. Today we are looking at the resurrection of Jesus as he appears to the first of all of the disciples. And he appears first of all to Mary Magdalene. And there is no one who is more misrepresented in all of the pages of Scripture than Mary Magdalene. In fact, I, I say that with great confidence. She has been more maligned than anyone else. She has been more misunderstood than anyone else. She has had more spin put on her life than anyone else. There are more conspiracies about Mary Magdalene than anyone. If you want to go down a rabbit hole on conspiracies and one of the disciples, just begin to look up Mary Magdalene and it will take you places that you thought, man, I never thought I'd be talking about these things here. So what I'd like to do first of all, as we get ready to, to look at Jesus revealing himself to her, is I'd like to talk about some of the things that are not true about her. 
And then I want to talk about some of the things that are true. There are some misconceptions about Mary. First, uh, there is a confusion about Mary Magdalene and the other Marys in the Bible. That shouldn't surprise us because there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. And not only is there a confusion about the other Marys in the Bible, but there's also confusion about other women in the Bible that we don't have their names for. First of all, she is considered to be a prostitute when the Bible never says that she was a prostitute. The reason that she is considered to be a prostitute is because they conflate her with the woman caught in the act of adultery and with the woman who came and wept at the feet of Jesus, the woman who was a, who was a morally impure woman who came and wept at the feet of Jesus and then wiped his feet with her hair at Simon the Pharisee's house. And Simon said, if this man were from God, he would know who this woman was and who was touching him. And of course, Jesus forgave her. He said, Simon, who's going to love more? If you're forgiven a lot or forgiven a little? And Simon said, well, I guess if you're forgiven a lot. And Jesus said, woman, your sins have been forgiven you. And he spoke of the great love that that woman would have for Jesus. And in fact, Pope Gregory, somewhere around the 600s, made it official that these two women were both Mary Magdalene. And uh, for whatever it is, until 1969, when the Catholic Church came out and reversed their position and said that these two women were not Mary Magdalene. Once I was talking to somebody about Mary Magdalene, they were telling me that she was a prostitute. And I said, why do you think that? And they go, well, you just assume. And I said, you just don't assume people are prostitutes. You assume the opposite. You assume they're not. You don't just all of a sudden assume they are. One of the other confusions about Mary is the confusion with the other Mary. So you have Mary, the sister of Martha, and you have Mary Magdalene, and both of them were women disciples of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene took a very costly flask of alabaster oil, perfume, and broke it on the feet of Jesus. And that reminded people of the woman that cried on Jesus's feet and wiped her tears with her hair. And somehow they conflated that with Mary. And so they believe that that Mary is the same Mary. Third, there is a Gnostic gospel of Mary. And let me just for a second talk about the Gnostic gospels. I think it was 2002 that the Da Vinci Code came out. And they said that there were two lines of gospels. There were the traditional gospels that eventually made it into the canon of Scripture. And there were the Gnostic Gospels and they were fighting against each other and it was neck and neck. And finally, the Nicene Creed, whenever that was, 384, determined the Gnostic Gospels were not going to be in the canon of Scripture and the other ones made it in and they were the ones who made the decision of the kind of Christianity that we have today. But let me tell you a little bit about the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that God the God who created the heavens and the earth, to us, that's Elohim, right? That's Yahweh, the creator of the heaven and the earth. And he is one God and he is a good God. The Gnostics believed that he was an evil God, that there was a good God and that this evil God decided to create the world and he created it evil. And that's why our bodies are evil and what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. That's why the Gnostics taught that. And so they taught something, and by the way, they did not come out of Christianity. 
You didn't have Christianity and then these Gnostic beliefs come out of it. You had Gnosticism that was around for a couple hundred years before the time of Christ. It influenced Buddhism. It influenced Hinduism. It influenced all kinds of different world, you know, world religions. And it influenced Christianity. So that by the second century, that's 100 to, to 200, 100 to 199, the second century was highly influenced by the Gnostics going all the way up into the third century. So the Gnostics began to write their Gospels and they wrote them during the third and fourth century. So the Gospel of, of Mary, we're missing the first six pages of it, so we don't know a lot of the story, but there's actually been a movie made about Mary Magdalene from the Gospel of Mary and it most certainly was not written by Mary. We know that because we can date it. All of the books in the New Testament, all of them, can be dated back to the first century. All of them. These were written two, three, four hundred years after the fact. And so they added a name and they didn't, I don't know, it's believed that they didn't do it deceptively, that they weren't necessarily pseudofigures. A pseudofigure is when someone writes something and pretends it comes from someone else. So you had the Gospel of Philip. The thought is it's a pseudofigure, it's written, and it, the name on there isn't really Philip and it was done to try to fool you and make you think it was written by Philip. But everybody knew it wasn't written by Philip. They knew it was written and they put Philip's name on it so that you would know who it was and they wrote from Philip's direction, this was Gnosticism. So everybody knew when the Gospel of Mary was written that Mary Magdalene didn't write it. But they did believe that it was inspired by the, whatever Gnostic Christians believed, whatever inspiration that they believed in. And so that Gospel of Mary said that Mary was the leader of the disciples. Like I said, there's a movie out that you can watch on the life of Mary Magdalene where she's the leader of the disciples. And she was never one of the, the according to the Bible, she was never one of the leaders. It doesn't downplay her role at all, but somewhere along the line, somebody tried to, to play it up. And so the Gospel of Mary, or the Gnostic Gospel of Mary, certainly not true. And then of course, from the Da Vinci Code, you get the idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they had children and that the children are the real Holy Grail rather than his blood being in the Holy Grail that Mary Magdalene had children. Those children have the blood of Jesus in them and they were the really Holy Grail. This concept or idea was not new to whoever wrote the Da Vinci Code. I can't remember, Dan Brown, right? Was it new to Dan Brown? In fact, there was for hundreds of years, uh, there was the idea that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus before they started their ministry. And that she kind of backed away once he ended up being crucified, knew that he had to be crucified and was going to be crucified. Others believe in the Dan, whole Dan Brown thing that Jesus actually escaped crucifixion, later on married Mary Magdalene and they escaped to France. I'm working off memory here now, all right? I think it was France. They escaped to France and that the, the, the children or the offspring of Jesus were now living in France, if I remember that correctly. Well, that's not the first place, as I said, that that whole idea came from. There's the Gnostic Gospel of Philip. Again, it, it applies to the Gnostic Gospels. This was when it was written sometime in the 4th and 5th century. It was written in Coptic, which is Egyptian, okay? Not Greek, the rest of the New Testament. The New Testament we have was written in Greek. This is Coptic. There's a large uh, Jewish group of people in Alexandria, Egypt, and a large Christian group there as well. And um, this said that Mary was his favorite disciple and that he used to often kiss her 
and then it's blank. You would kiss her on the blank. And so most people will write in, he would often kiss her on the lips. Others will write in, he would most often kiss her on the cheeks, cheek. And people say, well, which one is true? None of them. It's a Gnostic gospel. It's made up. I, I, I don't know how fond Jesus was of Mary Magdalene. You know, I mean, there's no reason for us to think that Jesus might not have had romantic feelings towards someone. But we have no idea what, what Mary Magdalene looked like. We don't have any idea how old Mary Magdalene was. We might have a whole different picture of Mary Magdalene in our mind than what we should possibly have. But there's nothing in the scriptures to ever make us think that they were ever married or that they had any other kind of a relationship than a savior and someone who followed after them. Let's talk then for a moment about what the Bible says about Mary Magdalene. First, we're told that she was, that she had seven demons cast out of her. Jesus had delivered her. And who knows what her life was like before she was delivered by Christ? Who knows what the seven demons did to her, with her, made her do? All of it would be speculation. But all that we know is that she lived this horrible life of being possessed by seven demons and Jesus had eventually set her free. The second, my, my notes are sometimes hilarious, by the way. My notes are so bad, I can't even read them. When I, when I send them to the staff here, I tell them they're not for public consumption. They're not for pulpit consumption either. I really need to be more careful. Second, she was from Magdala, Mary Magdalene from the area of Magdalene. The interesting thing about this is that the city of Magdala has been discovered. Some of you guys have been there. The last two times we've gone to Israel, in fact, I think it was two times ago, we were told that they discovered the city of Mary Magdalene. And, we were, and, and all of us on the tour were like to our guide, you got to get us in there. And see, these, these trips are planned a long time beforehand. And the whole group has to pay to get in. So the guide really has to jump through hoops to be able to get into some place like that. And he was able to do it for us. But the great thing about the, the city of Magdala, it has a first century synagogue that was around during the days of Jesus. They have uncovered a first century synagogue. Now you can go to Capernaum and you can stand in a second century synagogue that Jesus never stood in and you can look down at the, through a hole in the ground and you can look at the foundations or the floor of the first century synagogue where Jesus actually opened up the scroll of Isaiah and began to read from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And he goes through that whole text and then he rolls it up and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. God had anointed him to do all of those things that happened in Capernaum. Three miles away is Magdala and Magdala has a first century synagogue that you can go in. You can actually go in. You can look at the mosaic floors. You can look at all the different things that are there. And Jesus most certainly taught in that synagogue because the Bible tells us that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee and taught in the synagogues in Galilee. Why would he skip his headquarters or, or Capernaum why would he skip one that was three miles away? Why would he not go to Magdala and speak to the one in Magdala? So you can, be, you can be really pretty sure that is one of the places that Jesus was. When you go to Israel, you find out that there are a lot of places where people say that Jesus was where they really have no idea whether or not Jesus was really there. There are a few places you know for sure. Now, the, 
the synagogue in Magdala is one of them. The southern steps on the Temple Mount are another one of them. And we go up and we sit on the southern steps and we have a Bible study on the southern steps because we know that Jesus actually walked there. So she was a woman that had demons cast out of her. She was from a town very close to Capernaum, which is, which is Magdala. Let me read you what this passage says here. This is Luke chapter 8. Listen to verse 2. It says, And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene. So he's giving a list of women that follow them. And some of them were healed of infirmities and some of them had demons cast out of them. Mary called Magdalene, it says, out of whom he cast seven demons. Then Joanna, the wife of Chuaz, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him for their subsidence. So now we learn what the women were doing who were disciples. We see all of the time what the 12 disciples were doing. But what were these women that the Bible talk about doing as they followed these disciples around to various places? They were taking care of them while they were on the road. They provided for their substance. And it says from their own substance. This tells us that most likely Mary Magdalene was wealthy. When we think of her, we don't think of her as wealthy. If she was one of the women that from her own substance went around and took care of Jesus and the disciples, and we usually don't think of women taking care of Jesus and the disciples, do we? But that's something that the Bible tells us happened. The fourth thing we know for sure about Mary Magdalene is that she went all the way to the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, John, the youngest of the disciples, and Mary Magdalene watched Jesus crucified and were there until he died. And his body was taken down and given to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who quickly prepared his body and put it in the grave. And the Bible says the women that were there watched while he was buried. So they knew where the body of Jesus was. The fifth thing we know about Mary Magdalene is the passage we're going to cover today is that God chose her to have the incredible role of being the first woman, the first person to see the resurrected Savior. So with that out of the way, let's pick it up in John chapter 20. We're going to go through verses 1 through 18. It says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. We know from the other Gospels that she went there with the other women that these women who had been there at the cross took spices and they went to go and prepare and take care of the body of Jesus. In the first century, it was the women who did that and they buried people almost immediately. There had been at least one Sabbath day. There might have been two Sabbath days. They haven't been able to tend to the body. She gets there early with the disciples, with the other women, excuse me, not the disciples, with the other women. And it says, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Remember when the women were going, they were worried about the stone. Who's going to take it away for us? Then when they got there, it was gone. Mary is dispatched to go and get Peter and John. It says, then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple. John, when he's writing the book of John, doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't say to Peter and John, who I am writing to you. He simply refers to himself as the other disciple or the one who Jesus loved. In fact, he does that here. He says, Gwinton called Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice that she there says, we don't know where they laid him. 
So she says that she's with those women. I say that because there are critics who will say, well, John's gospel tells a completely different story. There are four women that went to the tomb that morning, according to the synoptic gospels. And, and it, this says that just Mary went. It's just telling us from Mary's perspective. All right? And they says, we don't know where they laid him. Note that Mary never even began to thought that Jesus might be resurrected from the dead. Maybe if this were Mary, the sister of Martha, she would have thought that because she anointed Jesus for burial. She anointed his feet for his death. And she sat at his feet. Jesus had said, they're going to kill me. They're going to hand me over to the Romans and I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them directly, but it never even entered into her mind. Verse three says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I don't know if you, if you're a guy, you got to find that funny. Because tell me that you're not competitive. I mean, us guys are competitive. We can, we can add anything to anything and make it competitive. It doesn't matter what it is. And so Peter takes off to the tomb. John takes off after the tomb. John's younger than Peter. History tells us Peter was a big guy. Might have been fairly easy for him to outrun Peter. Couldn't out wrestle him, but he could outrun him. But he wants to let you know. The one, the other disciple got there first to the tomb. And he says, coming to the tomb first, he stooped down and looked in. Now we get an idea of John's personality. He stoops down, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter finally gets there. And he, he goes right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Skip Heitzig says that there is an ancient tradition from the days of Jesus that if you were over at someone's house and they served you a meal and the meal wasn't any good, that you would fold up your napkin and lay it neatly off to the side. And that was a way for, of you saying, I'm not coming back here anymore. This was no good. I'm not coming back anymore. Or you would wad it up and kind of throw it on your plate. And that was way, your way of saying, that was delicious. I can't wait to come back again. If that is true, and Jesus deliberately took the napkin that was over his head and folded it up, he would be saying, this world has not been hospitable and I'm out of here. And he will one day come back again and take care of things. But it gives us an idea here, by the way, of how they buried people in the first century. And this is the reason that I wonder about the Shroud of Turin, by the way, because it says that there was a napkin that was placed over his head. Now, it's possible, and one part of their tradition was to wrap the body like, like a mummy and then to lay a napkin over the head. It's possible that they could have folded a piece of material all the way down the body, wrapped the body, and then laid the napkin over the head. So that is possible. And I know there's been some dating of the Shroud of Turin, and there's a lot of, a lot of inconsistencies with it. All right? We'll just put it that way. But he lays it, and he places it by himself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John's got to tell you again. I beat him twice. He's got to tell you. He didn't have to add that in. The other disciple who got there first went in also, and he saw and believed. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.